Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another new episode of Psychology Concepts Explained. This is your host, Dr. Jack Chuang. I'm a psychology professor, and I'm trying a new tagline here. Maybe I can call myself the Psychology Explainer. Oh, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue very well. Anyway, for you new uh, listeners, welcome. Thanks for finding my uh, podcast channel here. And if you're a student studying psychology, especially intro to psych or lifespan developmental psychology, feel free to scroll down on my channel list at the beginning, and you'll find many traditional lectures that I've used for my class. And what's interesting about this is that I thought that most of my listeners were students. I was quite surprised that I got an email out of nowhere from a fellow instructor of psychology, and she wrote me a long email asking to collaborate. And uh, actually, let me let me set the stage here. I do have a topic of the day, which I will start after the break, and I'll put that timestamp in the description. But what I'll typically do, and I like this format for now, is to just talk about whatever's on my mind or what's happening during the first portion of the podcast. Okay? All right. So I'm a psychology professor. I've been teaching for a very long time. My doctorate degree is in counseling psychology. And in many of my previous episodes, I've talked about how I got here. So I don't think I want to go through that again <laughs> in terms of telling you my whole career life story. But uh, in any case, here are some things that have been going on the past week. I took a week off from podcasting because uh, we scheduled a camping trip for the week last week. Um, so it happened to be the week that we had my anniversary, uh, my wife's birthday the following day, my mother-in-law's birthday the day before. Yes, she joined us on this trip. It's not weird. Okay, she's great. And um, my birthday was the end of March. So... It's like a busy couple of weeks, so we decided to take some time off, but it coincided also with the beginning of the spring quarter at the colleges that I teach for. So I tried to do as much as I could before we took off on a Sunday, made it to the state park, and we went to, uh, in Texas, we went to Inks Lake, ink like uh, ballpoint pen ink with an S, Inks Lake State Park. And it was quite nice, you know, uh, by the water, got to chill out. The weather was very pleasant. And we have our camper van that sleeps four, so it was perfect for that. Then we proceeded to go to, oh, and, and I assume that when we're going to Central Texas that we would have cell phone coverage so that I can just use data on my phone. You know, I got a couple of gigs. Oh, that's enough for doing work on the web for a few days. Well, as it turns out, both my wife and I, we could not get cell phone coverage at our campsite. And I work online, right? So that's not good. And the reason was because we switched to from track phone to U.S. mobile because we really don't use our phones that much in terms of we don't need unlimited voice and text and all that. So we found U.S. mobile. They have very flexible plans that you can change every month. So if you just need a few, t okay, this is not a paid advertisement. But in any case, for our phones, the SIM cards, we're using the T-Mobile network. And their coverage, and those who travel cross-country and live in RVs know, their coverage is not the best for rural areas in the United States. Well, my daughter just happened. We, we bought her uh, an older iPhone. I think it's the iPhone 10. 
and her phone has the capability of using a variety of networks, the Verizon network, as well as AT&T and T-Mobile and so forth. So even though she got a U.S. mobile SIM, the SIM that she chose to use was the one that actually had the better coverage, used Verizon. So hers was the only phone that was viable at our campsite. So we told her, get online, add some more data, and we basically used the data from her phone. She's like, you're going to pay me back for that, right? He's like, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. Anyway, so it was kind of interesting. So we relied on her phone while camping and working. And she was taking online classes too. So we, we tried to make it work. You know, we've always uh, worked and traveled, so that really wasn't a problem. And, you know, I've been teaching online since 2010, solely since 2010. And before that, I think I've been teaching for a few years prior to that. And uh, so I'm used to just sort of fighting with bad internet. Um, but it just meant that I was keeping up and not working ahead as I'd like to on the first week. But so it was a little bit stressful at times, but then it's balanced out by being uh, immersed in nature, which was very helpful. Uh, okay, I switched microphones. Not that you all care. It may sound all the same to you. But when I started, I used my phone. Then I had another microphone I forgot I had called the Samsung S-A-M-S-O-N Go Mic. No, this is not an advertisement. And it's one of those little portable USB mics. Then I learned that that's a condenser mic, and it, condenser mics tend to pick up a lot of extraneous noises in the surroundings. I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's why when I was in Thailand and recording podcasts for my classes, it would pick up the motorbikes going by, the chickens across the street. Yeah, we had their chickens. And so uh, now that I've gotten into a little bit more serious podcasting, in other words, I care more about what I'm doing, <laughs> that... Uh, I upgraded to a Shure MV7. But that didn't work out quite well because they're not very iPad-friendly, and I'm using an iPad right now. And also, they're sort even though it came out in maybe half a year, a year ago, they took a step back and used a micro-USB port, which means I had to deal with a micro-USB cable, and, you know, those connectors are horrible. And anyway, in any case, the last couple of podcasts were using that mic. I'm sure it sounded really nice. But then I returned it, and instead I got a Samsung Q9U microphone, which I saw plenty of reviews online. I know the strengths and weaknesses of it, and I think, I hope, this is a good fit because it takes care of those things that the MV7 had problems with. This one is more iPad-friendly, and it has a USB-C port in the back as well as an XLR connection for you audio geeks out there. And I think it does a lot better with handling plosives because of the built-in windscreen and also this huge, looks like a big foam cup that goes on top of it. So I think that helps as well. And But while camping, I realized something that even though I was kind of getting by for almost a year, I would say about eight or nine months on an iPad Pro, older iPad Pro, for doing my work, I got a Bluetooth keyboard. I think I thought, you know, the reason I got it was because it's portable. Right, that's why I used the Chromebook before that. But before that, I've been using my uh, MacBook Pro from 2010, which is a brick. You know, it's like four pounds. And I remember when we were traveling international, sometimes there there are carry-on limits for how much weight you can carry on. And my, I would swear to you, my laptop took up half the weight of my backpack carry-on. And so from then on, since we traveled so much, I figured I really need 
to lighten the load. And I thought, okay, I'll get a small Chromebook first. That was kind of okay, but a lot of compromises. And I thought, well, let me try iPad. And for the most part, it worked okay, but it just doesn't do what a computer does. And I kind of miss all the functionality of having a real computer in terms of using a real web browser, file management, a slightly larger screen, and all those things. So I decided to break down just today, and I bought, I ordered a new MacBook Pro with the M1 Apple Silicon chip. For you Apple geeks out there, you might be thinking, no, you should have waited for the next gen to come out later this year. That's okay. I did all the research, right? I know what I'm doing. I bought this one because this one fits. None of them really fit in my price range, so to speak. I don't want to spend this much money on a laptop, but given that my last laptop lasted at least 10 years, and really I could still use it if I put the time into fixing it, but it's not able to upgrade to the latest operating system from Mac, so I decided to just break down and get a new one. And these things are not three-year purchases for me. When I buy a phone, I try to make it last as long as possible. My phone's going a little bit over three years now. Uh, it's a Xiaomi phone. And my last laptop lasted me all this time, whereas my wife and my daughter went through maybe two laptops each because we got cheaper Windows laptops. Um, and they weren't made as well. So I feel like that's a good investment. If I can, you know, I'm 50, 54 now, so I just had my birthday about a week ago. So I'm thinking, if I retire at 65, that's only 11 years. Did I do the math right? I'm pretty sure a MacBook Pro can last 11 years. There are a lot of people out there still using 2008 MacBook Pros, okay? So I think I'm good. So it's just like my dad, you know. He has a 2003 Toyota Camry. For the last five or 10 years, he kept thinking, I want to buy a new car. Last five years, he's like, I want to get a Tesla. My friend has a Tesla. You know, he's 82 now. I'm kind of thinking his Camry is his last car. Now, that's more of a praise about Toyota, not a knock on his lifespan, okay? So I'm not saying that, you know, his days are coming. I'm just saying that I don't really see why he would buy a new car at this stage. Um, it just doesn't make sense. I think if he does get a Tesla, you know, he's kind of eyeing that. I kind of wonder if the shift from driving a conventional car to an EV at his age, with having eye surgery in one eye, you know, not not complete 100% vision, that that's a good idea. Unless he buys it, then he passes it down to me, then I'm okay with it. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, so yeah, I had to break down and get a computer. So that took a while to research. And, you know, put, a, put in a plug for the YouTuber Luke Miani. He's a college kid who has a great YouTube channel. And I think he said that he oftentimes makes fun of his name, or people have. They call him Duke Miami, but it's Luke Miani. And look him up. I'll put the link in my show notes. I've done that before. I really enjoy his YouTube channel. He talks about all things Mac, so a lot of his YouTube videos help me make sense of what I needed to get for my purposes. I'm not a power computer user. You know, I'm not going to use Final Cut Pro or whatever these you know video editing softwares. So I don't need the most powerful machine. I need one that's going to last and that's durable, and that is easy to use, and I'm used to using macOS, and I think I made a good choice. Okay, that's enough geeking out. Um, next, I want to talk about some listener mail. All right, I did get an email here from, I believe it was a high school student, yes, and in their email, they said they're interested in psych. 
They want to study psych and later get a PsyD degree to become a clinical psychologist. And they said they don't know about the process to become one and looking for advice and if I can help them. They're a junior in high school. Man, when I was a junior in high school, I had no clue. I was just trying to fit in and adjust to living in America at the time. So props to this student who is already thinking ahead about a possible career choice. And they were looking at universities to get the BA in psych. Um, oh, they asked me if I knew of any places to study in New Jersey and New York area. Um, do the psychology PsyD or master's programs have to be APA accredited? APA stands for the American Psychological Association. And you know, all universities and colleges and hospitals are accredited by certain institutions. And that's basically a quality control mechanism, right? And so just like how plumbers are licensed, right? That licensing body is a protective me mechanism. It helps to protect the plumber and it helps to protect the consumer, right? So that if by law you need a license to practice that profession, then in order to get the license, you know that they have to have certain skill level and pass certain tests, right? And for the consumer, if a plumber did a bad job and they're not being accountable, then you can complain to the licensing board, they would investigate, and they might revoke someone's license. So that's why accreditation is important. So yes, do look for APA-accredited graduate schools and internships. And the website I put in the program notes here, it's called accreditation.apa.org. And I did a search in their directory. There were nine APA-accredited PsyD programs. PsyD stands for Doctor of Psychology. It's the newer doctoral degree that was invented uh, several years ago to focus on clinical psychology, not so much research like a PhD is. Did you know that a PhD degree is a research degree? So someone who gets a PhD in whatever field they're in, it means they've had to do extensive research to learn about their subject area. So for a PsyD degree, yes, you still have to understand research, how to interpret research, but you're not going to be heavily trained on doing research unless you want to. So accreditation is important, and there are a total of 396 graduate programs accredited by APA, 645 internships, 174 postdoc residencies. So there are a lot of them out there to choose from. And... They also asked me the process of becoming a clinical psychologist. Well, I may have talked about this a little bit before in other episodes, but basically you have to work backwards. Think of a career field you might be interested in. Interview someone who is already in that position. But for this specifically, I would have you think about, because you have many years to think about this as you're going through your educational years, is to think about whether you need a master's degree or a doctorate degree. What kind of work do you see yourself doing? Doing, Does a PsyD, does a doctorate in the investment of years and time and money to getting that additional graduate degree, what, is, what do you get in return that you couldn't do with a master's degree in clinical psychology or counseling psychology? Okay. I wasn't pausing for effect. I'm just drinking some tea to keep myself hydrated. I haven't spoken in a podcast for a week, and I think I've lost my podcast mojo. 
All right, I'm hydrated now. Uh, did you notice that I lost my train of thought very early on? I mentioned that a fellow uh, psychology instructor emailed me, and then suddenly I went off on, uh, was it 15 minutes without coming back to it? <laughs> All right, so yes, I, I would love to collaborate. I wrote, wrote her back a long email, and she actually said that she listens, she works in industry and, and other kinds of uh, private sector work and came back to teach at a college in the New York area and teaching general psychology I believe is a bit of a challenge when you're kind of specialized in one area so she wanted to get a refresher and stumbled upon my podcast and found it to be very helpful in her coming back to teach. So I think a great idea, and I think we're going to explore this more, and I'm also exploring this with a fellow podcaster named Jason, who I believe is in Arkansas. Hello, Jason. We've been emailing back and forth as well, is that I, I want to do some shows where, where I'm having a conversation with people. I don't really want to call them interviews, because interviews means that I'm hosting and someone's a guest, and the guest has, you know written five books and, you know, is really well-known and that kind of thing. And and I want them to, to hawk their merchandise and their T-shirts and their book or whatever. That's not really how I think of it. I think of it as having conversations uh, because I also want to talk too, right? So <laughs> anyway, I'm going to talk to these two folks. And, and what I envision is that since we are co psychology concepts explained is that I do want to interview students. Maybe the student I, I referred to earlier who's thinking about a career in psychology. I want to talk to undergrads who are psych majors, what their experience is like and their challenges and what advice they would give to high school students. Talk to graduate students who are studying psychology, what their experience is like. Um, how do they prepare for their application to get into grad school? How do they make all these decisions and what degree to pursue? Master's versus doctorate degree, Right. And uh, and I think that would just be interesting for those of us who are sort of in this bubble of the psychology world. I want to talk to people and have conversations about all these kinds of issues. And I can talk to fellow instructors about the challenge of teaching, teaching online, or teaching certain courses. Or we can have a topic of the day and say, you know what, this was one of my favorite topics when teaching this particular psych course. And I can talk to another fellow instructor and talk about how much we love that subject and why. Any case, those are some ideas I'm brewing around. And I think it's a good time to take my little break. And after the break, let's go to our topic of the day. Hello, friends. Let me take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast. Let me talk to you a little bit about searching for happiness or trying to achieve goals and oftentimes life and circumstances and other reasons get in the way. So BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with your therapist within 48 hours. And it's not a crisis hotline, okay? And it's not self-help. It's actual professional counseling, but it's done securely online. You have access to BetterHelp's network of over 20,000 counselors with a wide variety of expertise and training. And 
this is also about accessibility. If you don't have a counselor in your area to see in person, then this could be a great solution for you. So this service is available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. So again, accessibility. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as in traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, and they make it easy and free if you want to change counselors if necessary. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com slash PsychExplained and join the over 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health with the help of experienced mental health professionals. And there's a special offer for my Psychology Concepts Explained listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash psychexplained. You can see the link in the show notes. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Psychology Concepts Explained. Okay, let's get started with our subject of the day. And the subject of today is bystander intervention training. This is something that I stumbled upon through a colleague at work who advertised it under the guise of the issue of basically the anti-Asian hate incidences that are increasing around the U.S. and perhaps in other areas of the world as well because of the fallout of COVID-19 and the perception that's pushed by certain people of influence that that makes the association by using certain words like Kung Flu or China virus. And I think a lot of people don't really appreciate how powerful and influential those kinds of things are. They, I think people who don't get it, this is my personal opinion, they blow it off and think it's just a name. You know, everybody knows that, you know, it's not the Asian American that is to blame. You know, it's China. The virus came from China, so why can't we just call it a China virus? And it's sad to me that this has become political football, as we call it in America, because you would think that dealing with a pandemic, that we would stick with factual health information, how to deal with it. This is a public health crisis, but yet it's devolved into taking sides. And I, and I did a podcast about wearing masks a long time ago during 2020. Made a similar point there. In any case, I found this email and I was very interested because I personally find myself feeling sometimes a bit, you know, very anxious, very angry, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for, helpless. 
And the fact that I have to feel this anxiety upon me when I just leave my house to get in the car and run an errand. Will somebody in a vehicle driving by make a gesture at me? Will someone yell something at me while at the grocery store? Will someone spit on me? These are events that have happened to quite a few people. And if you follow social media to a certain extent, you've probably seen videos of elderly, especially elderly Asian Americans being attacked. So I was definitely interested because this organization, and I just learned of it because of that email, and I attended the bystander intervention training. It's one hour long on Zoom, and it was free, which is really awesome. And they call it a training because they're trying to give you tools on how to intervene in a variety of circumstances. And I believe a lot of this training originated in terms of, they call it gender-based training, meaning typically it's women who are being harassed in public. And how would you, as a bystander in public, intervene to help that person who's being harassed? And what I liked about it, and and I'm not going to go through it step by step because I want you to have that experience fresh. I struggled with this when I was writing out my notes for today. That, you know, should I describe all the different steps involved as a public service? And I feel like I want the organization to teach you. And I want you to go in with a fresh, open mind so that what you're learning is new and fresh. And not like, oh yeah, that's what Dr. Chuang was saying in his podcast. Okay, So the organization is called iHollaBack.org. I-H-O-L-L-A-B-A-C-K. iHollaBack, right? So it's a very nice, proactive, it's very clever actually, the name. And let me talk to you. And what I liked about it was, and I definitely recommend it, okay? So if you want to just <laughs> end the podcast here and go about your day and just I endorse it, go go do the training. But what I liked about it was that they actually included the psychological principles about bystanders. And a very well-known one that was uh, coined and researched by uh, Dr. Darley in New Jersey, I believe it was Princeton University, he coined the term bystander effect. And what is that? It's almost like this very strange mathematical... Uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Unconventional kind of phenomenon, which is common sense would tell you that, you know, let's say you're in a public place and, and you're not feeling well or you're injured, right? Could be a shopping center, you know, that kind of thing when we're allowed to be in crowds back then. <laughs> we can still do that now, but... And common sense would tell you that, well... If there are 100 people around, that's 100 potential people that could lend a hand, ask me how I'm doing, do I need help, right? But that's actually not true. Your odds of being of receiving help in that situation is increased when there are fewer people around. Oddly enough, the odds of you receiving help is decreased when there are a ton of people around. And this is why, right? This is called diffusion of responsibility. Diffusion of responsibility. So imagine those 100 people, 
And, and first of all, not everyone's going to notice you, right? But let's say a large percentage do see you. They do recognize you're in a sort of an awkward position, you know, for whatever reason. Well, let's say a uh, hundred people and their hundred sets of eyeballs, you know, they, they saw you. Each person is probably going to feel about 1% responsible. Now, you know, people aren't out there doing the math. Like, how many people around me? Okay, I feel 120th responsible. It's not literally like that, of course. But our sense of being personally responsible is related to how many people are around us. So if there are only two people who witness this person who looks like they might need help, right, only two people, then you probably stare at each other and think, okay, you're going to do this or am I, right? You feel 50% responsible. If you're the only one, you know, unless you're a really callous person, you'd be hard-pressed to not stop and at least ask if they're okay, right? And so, but keep that thought in mind, okay, that it is possible all you need to do is tweak your environment a little bit. And yes, you will be that person who is all alone witnessing someone in need of help and you will not render aid. Not because you're evil, but just because of your circumstance. And I'll, I'll describe this. I guess I'll describe it now. There's a very famous study that was been nicknamed the um, Good Samaritan Parable. Okay, the Good Samaritan Study. And I believe it was also done by Darley. I'll have to double-check this, but um, this is the whole genre of helping research that happened in the 70s and 80s, okay? And the w single main event that spurred a, a lot of this helping and altruism research was actually a murder that took place in New York City, uh, and the victim's name was Catherine Genovese, and a lot of textbooks write her name as Kitty Genovese. So you can Google that. Um, maybe I'll find a website about it and put it in the show notes. And what was horrific about this crime was that in the middle of the night, she was screaming for help. There was a person who was attacking her. And because her screams were so loud, there were many witnesses to the event. You know, People woke up, their lights turned on. The original report said that nobody called for help. You know, some of the details got muddy over the years, and, and the original reports were not that factual. Someone did actually call for help and all that, right? But but the initial impression was that how can dozens of people who witness something not intervene? So that's what spurred a lot of this research and the questions about, well, what determines whether we're going to give help? Now, in our psychology textbooks, there's also, and especially in social psychology, there's what's called a cognitive decision tree of helping, that is, for us and as, as an observer, we go through several mental steps before we're, we're, we determine whether or not we're going to help someone. So step number one is, did you notice the incident? So like my example earlier about it being in a public place, as an observer, as a bystander, you will not offer help if you did not notice it. Oh, I didn't even see it. That's kind of obvious, right? So that's step number one, yes or no. So if it's yes, you saw it. Step number two is, did you interpret what you saw as a crisis or an emergency? Yes or no? Now, this is where other people play a part in the diffusion of responsibility because other people can also serve as role models for you to give you information to interpret whether or not it's an emergency. 
right? So so literally put yourself in that situation. You're walking past someone who looks like, hmm, do they need help or not? And you're questioning in your mind. You see other people casually walk by as if nothing's happening. That's information. So you take that information of others, the other people's inaction, and interpret that as, oh, it's not a crisis. So step number two, you would stop right there and not offer aid. Right? You noticed it, but you did not interpret it as an emergency. So the fewer people around helps you to independently assess that situation better. Okay, Because other people's actions won't confuse you and give you the false impression that everything's just okay. Now, the next step after defining it as an emergency is, do you have the ability to help? Right. So let's say I'm in an airplane, someone is unconscious in need of CPR, right? I had CPR training, but it has expired, right? Or they need other kinds of medical intervention. I'm a doctor but not the right kind of doctor for that situation. So I'll notice the incident, I interpret it as an emergency, but I cannot offer help because I do not have the ability or the special skills needed to help in that situation, right? But if someone did notice the situation, interpret it as an emergency, step two, has the ability to intervene, the skills or strength or knowledge then yes, that person can offer help. So you can see that when someone does not offer help, you can look at this decision tree, mental decision tree, and see where someone stopped in the process of offering help, right? So now we've talked about the diffusion of responsibility, which is the bystander effect, right? More people around, less likely to get help. And also the uh, cognitive decision tree. Let's go back to the, the other one I mentioned, the Good Samaritan parable, right? So those of you who study the Christian Bible, you know that the Good Samaritan parable, you know, the phrase Good Samaritan refers to someone who's offering someone that they maybe not normally offer help to, but give them help anyway, right? Because they're a fellow human being. Well, the researchers involved, and again, eh, I have to double check my sources on this, but the researchers involved in this study wanted to determine what was more powerful in offering help to another human being. Is it someone's internal qualities, such as being a good person? And, and if so, let's choose, you know, as I think about this as a researcher, well, I want to choose a group of people who would naturally want to help people. Who would that be? Well, maybe nurses, nursing majors, you know. But they went to a seminary school, Right. And well, a, a school that has uh, seminary students, students who are studying to be priests. You would think, okay, if this person who's in college to, to become a priest is walking down the street and someone looks like they're in need of help, you would think of all the people you would choose to be in that situation, that would be a good choice, correct? Sure. So th that's the student population. Those are the subjects. Now, what was really clever about this study was that they were told by the experimenter, and, and of course they didn't know that this part was an experiment. They were told to go to a particular part of campus to a classroom to give a talk, to give a lecture about the Good Samaritan parable, right? But this is an experiment. So like any experiment, there are two conditions, two groups. In one group, 
these seminary students, you know, one by one, were told to go give this talk, but, you know, you better hurry, you're running a few minutes late already. Okay? The second group of seminary students were told individually, you know, one at a time, that, oh, you know, you're giving a talk in this room, in this building, but you have plenty of time, just go in and head over. So, you have a group of students who are future priests mentally preparing to tell the story about being a good Samaritan, about helping people. And what's going to happen is there's a student actor who's going to act like they're injured along this pathway from point A to point B of where they're going. They can't miss him. Okay, It's going to be pretty obvious. He's going to be groaning, you know, asking for help. Then what the researchers are doing are comparing the two groups and counting the percentage of each group of those who stopped to render aid, right? So what would your guess be? Well, shouldn't it be that both groups, you would hope 100% or a very high percentage, right? They're walking by themselves. There's no one around. There's no bystander effect. They're going to see a person who's obviously injured or in need of help. In their mind, they're rehearsing the Good Samaritan parable, the only difference is one group is running late, the other group is told that they have plenty of time. Should that really make a difference? Do you think a, someone who's a future priest is going to just step over someone, literally, who is in need of some attention, and maybe medical attention, just because they're running a few minutes late to a lecture? <laughs> okay, so um, sadly, the researchers found that in social psychology, the, the, one of the major principles is that we underestimate how powerful situations are. Yes, just by running late, a significant number of seminary students who were told they were running a little bit late did not stop to render aid. A large percentage of those who are in the not-in-a-hurry condition, let's call it, group, did stop and render aid. But even their percentage was lower than expected. I think it was two-thirds stopped, two out of three stopped to render aid when they're not even running late. And I believe it was only one-third or one-quarter, if I recall correctly, a very small number of those who were told they're running late stopped to help. So you see the the it's difficult to make judgments of people in that circumstance, right? We often make judgments in terms of people's character or their profession, but we often discount the power of the situation. Something as simple as running late can force someone to ignore someone in need of help. Okay, so again, the training I thought was, was very good. It was very engaging. Wendy was the person of... And they have many trainers, I believe. And so she happened to be the trainer at that time. And I believe what's useful about this intervention training is that it can apply to a lot of situations. You know, you're on a subway, you're on a bus, you're in a, you're in a shopping center, in a store, at a restaurant. You notice someone harassing someone else. It could be a man harassing a woman, could be a person harassing an Asian person, could be someone harassing a child. You know, whatever the situation is, just think of in general bullying situations. Could be verbal, could be physical. What's What I got out of this was that they're trying to help you 
with certain tools that are easy to remember, that you can mentally rehearse, so that it becomes second nature when you're in that kind of situation. And it doesn't take a boatload of courage to do it because some of these techniques are very subtle. Okay, they're not exactly like, okay, use the karate kick here and a chokehold here, right? It's not about direct confrontation in most cases. There are very subtle things you can do, like just stand in between the two people. Pretend you drop something and pick it up and just stand, you know, get in the way if it's a public place, right? Interrupt and ask for directions of the person who needs help, but pretend to be their friend and say, oh, yeah, there you are. Let's get going. So I'm not going to tell you exactly what those techniques are called because, again, I want you to go through that process. And I think what I liked about it also is it gave you permission that if you're the one being harassed, it's okay to not directly fight back and be confrontational. That is, it's okay to just be a little bit passive, just to get away from the situation and survive to live another day. That it's not shameful if you didn't speak up and put that person in their place because you just don't know what that person's capable of. So if they're already crossing that line and harassing you in a public place, do you really think that you're going to reason with that person or educate that person or, you know, in other words, it would probably just escalate the situation. So it depends on your comfort level, but I think there are so many effective strategies. I was very, very impressed with it, okay? Um, and again, I don't want to go through them. And they, they, they actually said I could if I wanted to just to give them credit, but I'd rather you experience it fresh and uh, and come away with it. So let me know if you do this, okay? There are various ways to contact me in the description of the podcast. You can email me. You can send me a direct message on Twitter. My Twitter account is open for that. You can also send me a voicemail. There's a link in the description that no one's tried yet. You can actually record a message for me, like leaving me a voicemail on a phone, and that... By doing so, you can give me permission to actually air your question, that voicemail on a future episode, right? So please, somebody do that. Okay, also in the description at the end, um, uh, along with my podcast, I have ways that if you want to contribute a buck or here or there, buy me a cup of coffee, I'd really appreciate that. I'm not in desperate need of money, but uh, it's a nice gesture, show of appreciation. So even an email would do. Uh, please do that. And I've listed some coffee roasters and shops that have, and all of the ones I've listed are ones I've bought from. And I'm increasing the list as I find more. They they're either have, they all have terrific coffee, but they also serve a good purpose in terms of supporting a small business, a minority-owned business, or, or there are a couple of organizations that sell their coffee to raise money for uh, rescuing pets. Okay. Okay. I think that's about it for the day. I think you got my message, right? That go ahead and try this bystander. It's very empowering. Okay, it really helped me. And I thought I knew a lot about bystander psychology, which I feel like I do. But yet as a human being, I don't want to feel like I'm in the position of weakness all the time. So it doesn't mean that I'm going to go out and pick fights with people. It just means that I have an arsenal of tools that I can choose to use on my tool belt 
if the situation arises, if I see someone harassing someone else, or if someone is harassing me, right? Then maybe I have some skills that I can do something to get myself out of that harmful situation. Okay, I think that's good. That's a wrap. I'll talk to you soon in another episode. Hey there, thanks for listening to this podcast today. Can you do me a big favor? Um, Just so that this podcast gets heard by more students of psychology and other people interested in the field, uh, go to Apple Podcasts and put a little rating there if you like and uh, a brief uh, review, okay? And you can also contact me directly using the links in the description, whether it's Twitter or email, with any suggestions or feedback that you may have to make the show better. And uh, if there are any topics you want me to talk about, I can add them. And if you want to support me by buying me a coffee, the methods are listed in the description as well. Again, thanks and have a great day.